True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live, and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Tiso Blackstar Group or its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 21, The Crimes of Advocate Barbie. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporter, Denise Harvey, as well as all of our existing Patreon supporters, for signing up to support the show on Patreon. Patreon support goes towards expanding our research capabilities and purchasing new equipment. At the moment, Patreon supporters get a shout-out in the show, and very soon I'll start releasing Patreon-exclusive content. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon, I'll leave a link in the show notes. If you prefer to do a one-off donation, we also have a paypal.me link, which I'll leave in the show notes as well. Any support of the show is always greatly appreciated, whether it's financial, sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, or just listening yourself and engaging on social media platforms. Every single bit helps, and I really appreciate all of the support that True Crime South Africa listeners have given the show. I've been researching today's case for quite a while, and decided to cover it this week. And in doing my final round of research, though, I found some rabbit holes. And then I discovered that those rabbit holes had rabbit holes. And eventually I was so deep in this case that I was using Google Translate to read Russian newspapers. No really. That will all make sense later, I promise. I also wondered about what to call this episode for a while. There were two perpetrators in this case, Suzanne Fisser and Dirk Prinsloo. Well, technically, I still have to call Dirk Prinsloo an alleged perpetrator because he has still yet to stand trial for the charges against him. And as a disclaimer, anything that I say about Dirk Prinsloo in this episode has been taken from news articles, a book written about the case, as well as Suzanne Fiss's testimony in court. So, that said, it seems that it wouldn't be entirely fair to reference Dirk Prinsloo in the name of the episode. Although, I kind of think he might enjoy the spotlight. So instead, I called it The Crimes of Advocate Barbie. The major resource I used to research this case was a book called Shattered Lives, written by Laurie Peters-James and Liesl Tom. Laurie worked for Dirk Prinsloo, as his PA for a very short period, and Liesl Tom is a journalist. The book is a mixture of facts and opinion, as well as insight from Laurie. What it does really well is tell the victim's story. I was unable to find this book for sale on any major electronic platform, but thankfully Laurie had uploaded a good part of it to a writer's website called Wattpad, and I was able to read it there. The crimes involved in this case took place in 2001 and 2002. 
One of the perpetrators was only eventually brought to trial in 2010, and the other still has not been. This case is different for a few reasons. Firstly, it's very rare for a female to be implicated in sex crimes, and that's not necessarily because it doesn't happen. I think it's more because female sex offenders slip between the cracks of what we as a society believe to be true about women. Just like female murderers, we like to make ourselves believe that women only commit crimes like these when they're forced to. Of course, that's completely untrue, and very short-sighted, and we'll delve into that a little later. It is for this reason that this case divided the public when it happened, and it still does today. In fact, I don't even know that I've made up my mind. Some people believe that Suzanne Fisser was as much a victim as the other victims in this case, and others believed that she was, and is, a cold-blooded perpetrator, who, along with her lover, targeted children to make their sexual fantasies a reality. Or maybe it was a bit of both, if that's even possible. I think I'm going to have to let you decide for yourself. So let's get into The Crimes of Advocate Barbie. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Suzanne Fisser was born to her parents, Johan and Susanne Fisser, when Susanne was in her first year of university. The couple had been childhood sweethearts, but when Susanne had fallen pregnant, she was apparently devastated. Coming from a deeply religious background, the couple were forced to marry, and neither family was very happy about it. Suzanne was allegedly aware that her birth had not been planned, and this apparently did impact her as a person. Suzanne and Johan's relationship deteriorated very quickly after Suzanne was born, and domestic violence was a common theme in the Fissa household. Suzanne was an only child, and although she claims to have never witnessed her father beating her mother, She saw the bruises, and she understood from a very young age that her role in the house was to placate her father, just as her mother did. When his anger started to boil, it wasn't long before it would erupt, so Suzanne learnt to distract him by siding with him and faking illnesses. It is alleged that Johann Fisser would often threaten to kill his wife, daughter, and then himself. Under these threats of familicide, Suzanne and her mother put on a facade for the outside world. They were the perfect Fissa family, with the studious and polite little angel girl. This was Suzanne's first instruction on how to keep your man happy at all costs. Fellow students at Montana High School described Suzanne as gentle and introverted, She did very well academically and was deputy head girl in primary school and a prefect in high school. 
she focused predominantly on academics, but dabbled in sports and cultural activities as well. Interestingly, Susan said that her daughter had never had a boyfriend in school, but it turns out that she did. She dated a boy in grade 9, but he allegedly broke up with her because she became too serious too quickly and it scared him off. It's quite a feat that Suzanne did so well in school, because at the time, her father worked for the National Intelligence Agency, and they moved several times throughout her childhood. Her mother did divorce her father at some stage, but they reunited and remarried, and by the time Suzanne matriculated and started her first year at university for her law degree, they were together again. Suzanne Fisser is no one's fool. She passed two degrees before applying to the bar to complete her articles. Suzanne was 24 years old at this time, and allegedly still a virgin. Whether this is accurate or not, it doesn't seem that she had any qualms about getting involved in relationships at that point. When she was appointed a much older mentor for her articles, who was recently separated from his wife, Cezanne apparently tried to start a relationship with the man. He was not interested as he felt it to be completely inappropriate and he stopped mentoring her. Soon after this, Cezanne sat for her bar exam and for the first time in her life, she failed. She then joined the Independent Bar of South Africa, referred to in law circles as the Rogue Bar. The chairman of the Rogue Bar was a man eight years Cezanne senior, Dirk Prinsloo. Dirk Prinsloo was an advocate who his colleagues referred to as a stain on the name of the law profession. He ran a seemingly successful private practice from his extremely lavish home on the outskirts of Pretoria. As guests and clients would drive up to the residence, a sign at the front gate proclaimed its name as Inner Circle Castle. No, really, I'm serious. That's what he called his house. As if naming a house that isn't a historical landmark isn't pretentious enough. Anywho, Dirk Prinsloo was a man who was very much concerned about appearances. He spent hours at the gym honing his physique and dressed only in label clothing, apparently right down to his underwear and socks. If you heard people describing Dirk, and you didn't know they were referring to one person, you'd be forgiven for assuming they were referring to several different people. He's been described as everything from the kindest man I've ever met, to a charmer, a manipulator, polite, charismatic, socially slick, extremely flirtatious, and then the crowning glory was the woman who had described having the hairs on the back of their necks stand up when he was near them. Dirk Prinsloo had wanted to be an advocate for as long as he could remember. As a child, he marked his underpants, Advocate Prinsloo. He has two brothers and is close with his father, it appears. No mention is made of his mother. Dirk, like Cezanne, excelled in school, 
but he made no impression on the people around him. Schoolmates couldn't even remember him when they were tracked down for comments. He had no relationships in school, and those he did have in university were apparently very normal for his age group. Dirk's father would later rack his mind to try and figure out where he had gone wrong as a parent. Unlike Cezanne's parents, he would never claim that his son was innocent of the crimes of which he was accused. Despite Prince Lu's high IQ, he was described as having a very low EQ, and he made quite a bit of trouble for himself. He was known as a troublemaker, and on one occasion fired as a prosecutor for attacking a female witness in court. He had a reputation for being a bully, especially towards women, and he had an extremely short temper. On the occasion that he was fired from his prosecutor position, he allegedly distributed laminated copies of his CV shortly afterwards. Again, you heard correctly, he laminated his CV. He also had indestructible Perspex business cards made. Dirk Prinsloo held his own name in very high regard. He was also extremely paranoid and fiercely private. He refused to allow anyone onto his property without an appointment, and once smashed the glass table of one of his PAs because she allowed the sheriff of the court onto the premises without an appointment. He regularly told people that the government, police, and several judicial bodies were out to get him because he was fighting for people's rights. In reality, Laurie would later comment that the only clients she ever saw Dirk with were foreign immigrants who needed assisting getting visas. He also, ironically, represented a few people accused of sex crimes against children. So, real high-level stuff there. He managed to maintain a pretty expensive lifestyle, though, so I'm assuming the clients he did have were paying top dollar for his services. At the time that Suzanne Fisser joined the Rogue Bar, Dirk Prinsloo had recently separated from his wife Elsie. The woman had been his previous legal secretary, and Laurie remembered seeing a photograph of her once. She said that she looked exactly like Faith Hill. When she commented on how beautiful she was, Dirk had told Laurie that she'd looked nothing like that when he met her. He said, quote, I made her into that, end quote. Those words would ring ominously in Laurie's ears as future events unfolded. Apparently innocent and naive, Suzanne Fisser was immediately in awe of Dirk Prinsloo and he took an instant liking to the young advocate as well. Ever the social butterfly, Dirk invited Cezanne and two of her female colleagues to his house one weekend for a bra. Although she was one of many guests, the others would later say that he only had eyes for Cezanne that day. He gave her a tour of his sprawling mansion, and Cezanne, from a middle-class home, 
was dumbstruck at the opulence around her, as well as this intelligent and successful man, who was looking at her as though she were the only person in the room. This visit would be the beginning of Cezanne and Dirk's relationship. She went home that night, back to her parents' home where she still lived, but soon Dirk was declaring his undying love for her. He called her princess and seemed to worship the very ground she walked on. Cezanne was swept away on this wave of adoration. Very soon, Dirk started to make sexual demands of Cezanne. She explained that she was a virgin and had absolutely no experience with sex at all. She would later allege that, at this point, he had shown her a pornographic movie and then told her to perform oral sex on him in the same way that the woman in the movie had. Cezanne, having been raised to do what was required to keep the man of the house happy, did what she was told. I do want to say at this point that the perspective we have on Cezanne and Dirk's relationship comes from Cezanne herself, as well as a few witnesses who were unlucky enough to witness some of their interactions. We don't know if this representation is 100% accurate, but for now, it's all we have, and mostly it is backed up by some evidence. Dirk convinced Cezanne to leave her parents' home and move in with him. Her parents, deeply conservative people, were horrified. And I say that with a tiny smirk, considering the violence that was prevalent in the conservative house. But Cezanne was convinced that Dirk was her future husband, and she had never been so absolutely adored by any person in her life. This act of over-the-top displays of adoration praise, expensive gifts, and just general creepiness, is called love bombing. It's a very common tactic used by people who are trying to get prospective partners or friends under their control. We all have a pretty good idea of what the early days of a relationship look like. It's usually fun, a little awkward perhaps, and generally it moves pretty slowly as you both get to know each other. With love bombing, you will experience major intensity very early on in the relationship. So much so, that it takes you aback. And while it's lovely to feel so adored and cared for, it somehow doesn't seem right, because this person barely knows you. Well, for the narcissist, they know you just well enough to know that they want to control you. And because you haven't had time to see their negative personality traits yet, you don't see the invisible bonds that are being placed around you with each gift, compliment, and declaration of love, until it's too late. I don't know when Cezanne realized that Dirk Prinsloo was not entirely the knight in shining armor he made himself out to be, but their first night together was probably a good indicator. Cezanne would later describe her first penetrative sexual experience with Dirk as brutal. 
he knew she was a virgin, but apparently made no effort to make the experience enjoyable for her. Later, she lay next to him and did what she learned once again. She told him it was an amazing experience. Dirk's promises to Zazan included that he was going to make her an international model. She was going to be a celebrity, he said, famous across the world, and he didn't think that she should work as an advocate anymore because it would only get in the way of her new bright future. Economic control. You don't have to work anymore. I'll take care of you. And in the process, access to your own money and financial independence is lost. Dirk wasn't completely off, though. He did make Cezanne famous, or rather infamous. She would have a hand in that too, of course. He promised that everyone would know her name. And we do. Dirk started designing the new Cezanne without delay. The pretty but rather ordinary girl would eventually have three breast enhancement operations. She went from a B cup to a double E. Strangely, Cezanne would state in court that she was only aware of two breast enlargements. She had been sure that the last operation was actually to reduce her breast size, as she'd complained to Dirk of severe back pain. Medical records prove that she did in fact have three enlargement procedures. All had been booked, arranged and paid for by Dirk Prinsloo, and the surgeon had simply slapped implant on top of implant. Laurie had said that when she'd seen Cezanne changing, she noticed how malformed her breasts were. The redesigning of Cezanne continued with tattoos, including one at the top of her bikini line, of Dirk's name. The word branding comes to mind, and not the marketing kind either. Cezanne's hair was peroxided blonde, and she was given extensions. She had fat removed from her buttocks and injected into her lips. Dirk took her to the gym twice a day, six days a week, and trained her himself. Observers noted that although she looked like she could pass out at any minute, she continued to push herself to please Dirk. Suzanne's body was never quite good enough, though and many of Dirk's secretaries reported seeing Cezanne naked, standing on a stool, while Dirk scrubbed her buttocks and thighs with anti-cellulite products for hours. She wore contact lenses to change her eye colour. She had a nose job and several piercings, including one in her genitals. She wore ridiculously revealing clothes, which were allegedly chosen by Dirk. On one occasion, the couple were seen parading through Mainland Mall with Suzanne wearing a see-through outfit that Dirk had purchased at a sex shop. You don't ever have to have seen outfits at sex shops to imagine that they are not appropriate attire for malls. Another method of control that Suzanne would allege was used against her 
was food. She claimed that she made extravagant meals for Dirk, but she was never allowed to eat them with him, because she may gain weight. Instead, she had to have a meal replacement shake. This was witnessed by Laurie as well, when Dirk and Cezanne ate at her house one evening. They each had a plate of food, and then when Laurie's mom wanted a dish up seconds, Cezanne handed over her plate, and Dirk gave her the dirtiest look, which quickly changed her mind. Laurie was, however, a little sceptical about Cezanne saying she cooked every night for Dirk. As his housekeeper, who had somehow managed to stay employed with him for many years, cooked meals in advance for Dirk as part of her duties. Having left her law career behind, Cezanne became Dirk's assistant, doing menial tasks for him. Mostly, though, Cezanne was there to service Dirk's sexual pleasure, and I will warn you that at this point, things get a bit, well, strange. Dirk Prinsloo reportedly had an insatiable sexual appetite, which he seemed to believe it was Cezanne's responsibility to resolve. Every person that entered Dirk's home spoke about the huge collection of pornography he owned. Magazines lay open around the entire house. The couple's bedroom contained two ceiling-high cupboards filled with pornographic movies. Sex toys littered the floor, and Dirk's housekeeper was forced to wash them daily. Dirk allegedly insisted on Suzanne performing oral sex on him whenever he demanded it, and he didn't care if someone else was in the room at the time. Many of his PAs reported being in the room when Dirk quite suddenly unzipped his pants and pushed Suzanne's head down into his crotch. Suzanne's parents, although experiencing their own issues and on the verge of their second divorce, were extremely unhappy with what their daughter was doing. The shocking physical changes that she'd undergone were the tipping points, and they made such efforts to get Suzanne away from Dirk that the couple ended up taking out a domestic violence protection order against them. Isolation from family and friends. One of the steps in taking complete control of a partner is stopping any contact between them and those who love them. When the person no longer has a support network, they are far easier to manipulate. Dirk's sexual interest often involved threesomes and swinging. He would allegedly send Suzanne out to scout for prostitutes that suited her lover's taste. Usually, though, he wanted Suzanne to have sex with them first. During this time, Dirk decided to make his first move to increase Suzanne's public image. Despite the fact that she couldn't hold a note, he entered her into a singing competition called South African Idols. She actually made it through to the second round of the competition, which, to be honest, doesn't say much for the quality of the competition, but Suzanne was not there for her singing talent. She rocketed into the public eye as people ogled her physical appearance and found it so strange that she was also an advocate. 
Cezanne's nickname was born in the media after this audition. She became known as Advocate Bobby. What also sparked from this audition was additional press attention for the couple. They were interviewed on a talk show by ex-Big Brother winner Ferdinand Robbie, who spent the entire interview lusting after Cezanne. She started the interview dressed in traditional advocate's garb, and then stripped on camera into a tiny bikini. Robbie ended his interview by signing one of Cezanne's breasts and asking Dirk's permission, please note, to kiss her other breast. Dirk readily agreed and smiled throughout, seemingly eager to see how his creation was being adored. The Bar Association opened a case against the couple after this interview for bringing the profession into disrepute. Suzanne's mother decided to go to the press herself and gives an interview to Heisgenoot about her daughter being controlled and manipulated by Dirk. This only serves to increase the rift between mother and daughter, as Suzanne then replies with her own article, professing her undying love for Dirk and saying that he was helping her and she'd never been loved the way he loved her. Just to give you an idea of timeline, this is all happening within weeks and months of Cezanne moving in with Dirk. Also within weeks of her moving in, his sexual control over her became much more violent and pronounced, and he also rarely called her princess anymore. His new name for her was Slut. She in turn called him God. Witnesses would later testify that Cezanne had Dirk saved in her cell phone as God. She addressed him as God in letters and signed off as Your Slut. Cezanne would claim that this was Dirk's way of mocking her prior religious convictions. Dirk allegedly did not think that Cezanne should hold any being in greater regard than him. He further reinforced his mockery of her beliefs on a holiday in Muscle Bay. While driving, they came across a chapel on the side of the road. He took Suzanne inside and allegedly forcibly penetrated her while holding her down by her hair on the altar of the church. He would allegedly assault Suzanne during sex and forced her to walk around the house naked. His PAs would later confirm that they had regularly seen Cezanne naked at the house. Dirk allegedly had a predilection for using foreign objects during sex. He kept a revolver under his pillow, which he used to penetrate Cezanne. She in turn, and perhaps harping back to her childhood where she learned to distract to avoid anger, starts to use vegetables to penetrate herself when he becomes angry to distract him. He takes photographs of her in compromising positions. One such photograph shows a seemingly unconscious Suzanne with a dog collar around her neck, shackled to the bed. Her body is bruised, and she would later say that when she came to, Dirk had told her that he had forced his dogs to lick her genitals. 
while he regularly forces her to have sex with other women, no other man is allowed to touch her. He threatens her by saying that he is going to arrange ten mine workers to rape her. He forces her to drink his urine as a sign of her complete devotion to him. Cezanne started using Dirk's surname. She claimed that he had convinced her that because they were living together, they were now a common-law man and wife. When a judge asked her how someone that had two law degrees could believe she was married if she hadn't had a legal ceremony or signed her intent to marry, Suzanne said that she wasn't thinking with her legal brain at the time. Laurie, the secretary, says that there is no way that Suzanne could have believed she was married, as she was well aware that Dirk was still married to his former wife. They were in the midst of a battle because Elsie wanted more of their marital assets than he was willing to give. Dirk had referenced this on several occasions, in front of Laurie and Suzanne once even saying that he was thinking about hiring a hitman to kill Elsie. It's inconsistencies like this that make me wonder how deep in this control Suzanne really was. Speaking of Laurie, let's get into what she and the rest of Dirk's PAs witnessed and endured at the Inner Circle Castle. Dirk's fits of rage and the extremely strange goings-on at the home, which doubled as the office, meant that Cezanne was advertising for new PAs almost constantly. Laurie is, of course, one of the authors of the book Shattered Lives, and she has both good and bad things to say about the couple. In her interview for the job, Laurie almost immediately knew something was a bit off, when Dirk asked her how she felt about pornography. She answered that she didn't really have an opinion on it, but it wasn't something she was interested in. Laurie was hired. She had a legal background and was well qualified for the position. She also ran a graphics design business and did tell Dirk about this, and he agreed that she could do both. Laurie says that Dirk was uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You never knew who you were going to get. But she says that she wouldn't describe him as a tyrant. And even when he was in the midst of a rage, she still felt that if she voiced her opinion, he often stood down and listened. She would be the only one who would say that. And I think that comes down to Laurie's personality and her qualifications. Dirk also helped with a few legal issues she had in her own life, and when he did so, he was kind and compassionate. Laurie did say that Dirk wanted to be lord and master of every person in his life. He wanted to control the actions of everyone. Laurie also spoke about the huge amount of pornography around the house, and the fact that the couple regularly touched each other's genitals in her presence. Laurie is still in contact with Suzanne's mother today, and this all started when the woman phoned one day wanting to speak to her daughter. Laurie had absolutely no idea that there was a rift between mother and daughter, so when Suzanne phoned, she told her that she would give Suzanne the message. The minute that Dirk heard her put down the phone, 
and found out who had been on the line. He flew into a rage. He told her that Cezanne had a restraining order against her mother because she was trying to tear them apart and she didn't want what was best for her daughter. Laurie had seen Dirk's treatment of Cezanne at the stage, how he was violent with her, insulted her and controlled her. Susan had sounded so desperate on the phone that Laurie felt sorry for her. The next time Susan phoned, rather than telling her not to call back as Dirk had instructed, Laurie gave the woman her home phone number. From that day, she would give Susan updates on Susan. Laurie would say that she saw two very different sides to Susan. They became friendly and bonded when Cezanne would cry to Laurie over Dirk's treatment of her. But she also saw a side that she described as darker. Cezanne mocked her sexuality. She didn't seem at all put out by what Dirk had created in her physically. In fact, she told Laurie that the feeling of men lusting after her as she walked around and women gawking at her was addictive. She described it as the ultimate control, and a rush that she could not live without. Laurie was not employed by Dirk for very long. She left when he and Cezanne started to sexually groom her. They gave her skimpy lingerie for her birthday, and made no secrets about the fact that they wanted her to try it on for them. Laurie resigned that day, but she stayed in contact with the couple, doing some touch-ups on photographs for them. The photographs were definitely not intended to make Cezanne an international fashion model, perhaps an international porn star, but nothing more than that. The photos that Laurie was asked to touch up also included photographs of the couple in sex acts, alone and with other people who she couldn't identify. One photograph disturbed Laurie a bit. It was a picture of Dirk and Cezanne laying naked on a bed. Dirk appeared to be masturbating, and two naked red-headed females sat on the floor massaging their feet. Laurie says that the girls didn't look underage to her. It was just a disturbing image. Laurie still hoped that she could help Cezanne escape from Dirk, and when she came to collect the photographs, she asked her how she felt about what people were saying about her in the media. At this time, photographs had been leaked by an employee at a photoshop. They were pornographic photos of Cezanne, and they'd initially been confiscated from schoolboys at a nearby high school. These photos then ended up in the hands of a newspaper who wanted to publish them. Dirk took out a gag order against the release of the photos, but the damage was done. The public image of the couple was now high profile for their sexual escapades, and they were simply popular for being such an odd combination of a profession that was supposed to be ethical and hold itself to a high standard, and this insane private life that they led. Cezanne's response to Laurie's question about the bad publicity was that there was no such thing as bad publicity. It's all good, she claimed. 
I somehow think she may have a different answer to that question if she was asked today. On this day, Laurie also noted that Cezanne had a new car. Her old blue Honda that she had owned was gone and replaced with a maroon 4x4. Cezanne said at the time that the car was hers and Dirk had bought it for her. Dirk denied this when Laurie asked him though and he said it was his car and he just let her use it. The reality was that Dirk had told Cezanne that they should sell her car and she could get the money and then he would buy her a new car and register it in her name. He did sell her car, but he kept the money and never registered the new car in her name. Hey guys, I am over the moon to have this episode sponsored by Podcorn. I've had so many listeners contact me since I started True Crime South Africa telling me that they also want to get into podcasting. And I know that a lot of people listening right now are either considering starting their own podcast or already have. Podcorn is a podcaster's best friend. What I love most about this platform is that they do things completely differently to everyone else. Podcorn is an online marketplace that connects podcasters with sponsorship opportunities like host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. What I really respect about Podcorn as a company is that they don't discriminate. So for most platforms like this, you have to be a huge podcast with millions of downloads, but Podcorn gives everyone a chance. You log into the Podcorn marketplace, and you choose which brands you want to partner with, set your own rates, and design your own adverts. You also deal directly with the brands, so there's no miscommunication. I'll leave a link to the Podcorn website in my show notes. Thank you so much to Podcorn for believing in True Crime South Africa and sponsoring this episode. Mersha Jacobs was another PA of Dirk's. She worked for him before Laurie did. That's not her real name. She was only able to work for Dirk for seven days. She too testified to having seen interactions between the couple that ranged from extreme violence to sexual acts conducted right in front of her. One of the reasons that Mersha's real name has not been used is that she was also a victim of Dirk's. Mersha was sexually assaulted by Dirk Prinsloo and forced to perform oral sex on him. After the incident, he left the house, and she removed every trace of her contact information from the premises and left. When a friend of Mersha's found out what had happened, she advised her to go to the police. Mersha had to go to hospital to be examined for police records, and the doctor that examined her said that she was in such a state of shock that he had no doubt that she had been assaulted. Unfortunately, due to the nature of of the sexual assault, physical evidence could not be recovered, but the doctor noted that her emotional reaction was similar to other rape victims he had examined. The doctor wrote out a sick note, excusing her from work for the next few days, or 
permanently if need be. He faxed the notes to Dirk from his offices. Within minutes, Dirk Prinsloo was on the phone to the doctor. He demanded to know exactly what Mercia had told him and what his physical findings had been. He also wanted a copy of the reports that the doctor submitted to the police. The doctor told him that he was not bound to release that information to him and he could contact the police instead. In what would become a pattern for Dirk Prinsloo, whenever he was accused of anything, he struck first by laying a false charge of theft against Mercia. He claimed that she had stolen 10,000 rand from him, and Cezanne submitted a statement agreeing that this had happened. She went on to say that the sex acts between Dirk and Mercia were consensual because she had been there, which is absolutely untrue. Mercia Jacobs would later have her charges against Dirk included in the trial against the couple. Rihanna Brink was hired as Dirk's PA after Laurie left. She knew Suzanne from having worked at the independent bar together, and they'd been friendly at the time, socialising and going to restaurants and pubs together. When Rihanna saw the advert in the newspaper for a PA position, she had no idea that this was Suzanne's partner. When she arrived at the Inner Circle Castle on the day of the interview, and Suzanne opened the door, she actually didn't recognise her. Such was the dramatic physical transformation. Suzanne recognised Rihanna, though. Rihanna said that she couldn't believe how different Suzanne looked. She too was asked the pornography question in her interview. Rihanna was in a very difficult period in her life, and she was desperate for a job. She and her husband had recently split up, and they were in a fierce custody battle for their daughter. Rihanna had to get a job and a place to stay within weeks, or risk never regaining custody of her daughter, who was with her husband at the time. In the interview, Dirk informed Rihanna that she would be working for him 24-7. While she would only be at the office during office hours, she had to be ready to spring into action if he needed anything at any time of the day or night, including weekends, and she shouldn't expect any overtime pay for that either. Most people would turn down such conditions, but Rihanna was so desperate that she accepted. For the first few days, Rihanna enjoyed the job, but soon Dirk started to demean her constantly. Then he escalated that to physical violence, and he would make her stand to attention at any time he entered the room. If she wasn't fast enough, he hit her back down into a chair. By this time, Dirk was well aware of her battle for custody, and would intersperse his violence with offers to help her, with money to pay lawyers or put a deposit down on a property. This reeling in of a person with kindness, especially when they're in a desperate situation, only to turn on them and demean or assault them, is another typical sign of narcissistic control. Dirk knew that he had Rihanna exactly where he wanted her. She consulted with her family court advocate, who was dealing with the custody case, 
and she told him what Dirk was doing. Sadly, the advocate simply told her that if she left her job, she would be deemed unstable and would lose custody. Rather than helping her, he pushed her deeper into Dirk's clutches. Rihanna eventually won custody of her daughter, but on the Saturday that she was supposed to come home, Dirk suddenly called Rihanna back into the office for an emergency. Rihanna had wanted to give her little girl a wonderful homecoming, which Dirk very well knew. Instead, she had to fetch her the next morning, after typing documents throughout the night, which could have very well waited until Monday. Rihanna would later testify that there was one computer at the practice which was connected to the internet, and she didn't have the password to it. Cezanne would sit on the computer for hours, downloading pornographic images for Dirk. Many of these were found to include images of children being sexually assaulted. One day, Cezanne Cezanne approached Rihanna with a photograph of a little blonde girl. The photograph depicted a sexual act being perpetrated upon her. Cezanne quite lightly told the horrified Rihanna that the girl looked just like her niece. She seemed extremely excited about the fact. The amount of pornography in the house was another huge problem for Rihanna. She said that you could not go anywhere in the house without seeing an open magazine depicting violent sex acts. She had to look after Inner Circle Castle when the couple went away, and she begged the housekeeper to help her pack away the magazines so that she didn't have to see them the whole weekend. The housekeeper refused, saying that Dirk knew exactly what page each of the magazines was open on and where it was in the house. If they moved it, he would know. She had fallen foul of having moved a magazine before while cleaning, and had paid dearly for it. Rihanna says that Dirk Prinsloo would watch or look at porn constantly. He even had porn movies playing in his office while he was supposed to be working. She would be forced to watch Suzanne perform oral sex on him. Dirk told Rihanna that a woman's worth was based in how well she was able to perform oral sex. Rihanna would also be witness to an even darker event in the house, and one which spoke to something very different happening behind the scenes. A doctor friend of Dirk's delivered medication to his house without prescription, The two predominant medicines delivered were Viagra and Rohypnol. The former is of course a drug to boost male sexual performance, while the latter is commonly known as the date rape drug and is frequently used by sexual predators to incapacitate victims so that they can be raped. Rihanna described an incident where Suzanne had invited her to visit the salon with her They had their nails done, and then had a Brazilian wax. When they returned to the house, Dirk insisted on seeing what he had paid for, and he wasn't talking about her nails. Rihanna was forced to stand beside Suzanne, who had removed her pants completely, and expose her bikini area. 
she pulled down her pants just enough to expose the skin, and Dirk took a photograph. Dirk constantly found things that he claimed Rihanna had done wrong, and punished her by deducting money from her salary to repay the mistake. On one occasion, Dirk had accidentally driven over and killed one of his Jack Russells, and he instructed Rihanna to wrap the dog in a duvet and take the body to the vet for cremation. When she returned, he asked her where the duvet was, and when she admitted that the bloodstained duvet had been cremated with the dog, he deducted 400 rand from her salary to replace it. Of all of the abuse that Rihanna endured at the hands of Dirk and Cezanne, what put her over the edge seemed mild in comparison. Six months after Rihanna had started working for Dirk, her father came to visit from Namibia. She was over the moon to be able to spend time with him, and likely Dirk saw this and wasn't too keen on her being happy. He instructed her that she had to work that weekend so she wouldn't be able to see her father after all. She never returned to Inner Circle Castle. An attorney friend of hers helped her to put together a complaint of constructive dismissal and sent it to Dirk. Constructive dismissal is a term used in labour law when an employee essentially leaves an employer but states that they have only done so because the employer has made their working circumstances unbearable to endure, and they're left with no other choice. It is a very difficult charge to prove, as the onus is solely on the employee to prove that the situation was unbearable and that they followed all other possible routes before leaving. Dirk ignored the complaint and started to stalk Rihanna, demanding that she return to work. He phoned her family members and anyone else he could link her to. Eventually, true to his nature, he laid a charge of theft against her. Despite the fact that he hadn't paid Rihanna for her last month's salary, he charged her with theft because she hadn't paid him in full yet for furniture she'd bought from him. Rihanna struggled financially after leaving her job, and eventually lost her car because she couldn't pay for it. It's alleged that Dirk arranged for two private investigators to pose as policemen and approach Rihanna for a statement so that he could find out what she was willing to say about him and how much she knew. To put you in the timeline here, we're now in December 2001. In early 2002, Dirk and Suzanne approached Samantha Olifia, to replace Rihanna as a secretary. At the time, the couple knew Samantha from a Photoshop that they took their reels of form to to be developed. That's right, their nude sex photos. Samantha was understandably hesitant and agreed to work for Dirk as a trial run, but she didn't resign from her other job. She worked for Dirk for one day and never returned. They did stay in touch, though, through the Photoshop, and one day the couple invited Samantha to their home for dinner. Samantha agreed, and they ate a chicken stir-fry, and Dirk suggested that Cezanne pour them some shooters. Samantha started to get up to help, 
but Dirk pulled her back down, saying Cezanne would do it. Samantha reports that after drinking the shooter, she started to feel extremely strange. She was no stranger to drinking shooters as a young person, and had never felt that way from alcohol before. She describes feeling groggy and unable to move. She was aware of pieces of what happened, but couldn't recall everything. These are classic side effects of rehypnol. One of the things she remembers was both Dirk and Cezanne kissing her and fondling her, and she could not remember anything after that. Cezanne would later claim that Dirk had been the one to prepare the drinks, and that she had had no idea that he'd drugged Samantha. She says that she thought that what was happening was consensual. She does say that they did not have sex with Samantha that night. Considering she's lying about whether she thought the acts were consensual, because she must have seen that after just one shooter, Samantha was basically unconscious. I don't know if we can believe that Samantha was not raped that night. This is the last of the testimonies from Dirk's secretaries. Many of these women would likely have kept their stories to themselves if it hadn't been for the couple's eventual arrest. Which begs the question, how many other women were assaulted by this couple if Dirk was going through PAs at the rough rate of one every fortnight? I decided to get into the testimony of the secretaries who were also victims first. But I must point out that at the same time that these women were working for Dirk and Cezanne, there were other sexual crimes taking place in the house, which would be the reason that the couple were eventually arrested. These crimes were against children, one as young as 11 years old, and that is what I'll get into next. Many witnesses testified to Dirk Prinsloo's predilection for young prostitutes, and when I say young, we're talking 14 and 15, who, through terrible events in their own lives and often drug addiction, have turned to prostitution to support themselves and their habits. One of Cezanne's duties was to go from brothel to brothel to find the youngest prostitute she could. These girls would later say that, from their perspective, she was more predatory than any male client they'd ever had. Cezanne testified in court that Dirk was no longer happy with 14-year-old prostitutes and instructed her to find a way to get younger girls for him. Cezanne came up with a plan to approach children's homes and told them that she wanted to foster girls for the weekend, to spoil them and mentor them. Cezanne was big news at the time, and her beauty and fame impressed many of the homes she approached, and had the young girls in awe of her. Some of the homes that Cezanne approached declined to allow girls to go home with them for the weekend, but several had no problem doing so. When the people in charge of these homes were later questioned, it emerged that they had no screening process in place for couples who wanted to foster on weekends, save a short interview. This honestly blows my mind. 
But after this case came to light, it is alleged that stricter procedures have been put in place, and I can only hope that is true. It didn't seem strange to the people in charge of these homes that Suzanne solely selected girls based on their appearance. She wanted the girls to be as young as possible, but already slightly developed, and they had to be pretty and slim. If this wasn't a red flag, then I don't know what was. It seems that Dirk had taught Suzanne well, though, in terms of how to manipulate people, because none of the people she dealt with ever thought anything was off with her. In contrast, they told the girls that had been chosen how lucky they were to be mentored and spend time with such an amazing, intelligent and accomplished couple. Not once did any of these people do a check of Inner Circle Castle before sending the girls there. Another thing that blows my mind. I volunteer in animal welfare, and we don't even let dogs be fostered if the home in question hasn't been visited and checked. The stories of three of the victims were discussed in the book Shattered Lives. Whether there were more, I don't know. The first girl taken home for the weekend was a 15-year-old we will call Anya van Sale. I don't know if that's her real name. Anya was keen to go with Cezanne and Dirk when she was told that she'd been chosen, because she had ambitions of being a lawyer one day, and she was excited to learn from the couple. To put you back in the timeline of events, the Friday that Anya was collected by Dirk was the same day that Cezanne was auditioning for the Idols competition. Anya would later testify that after Dirk picked her up, they went grocery shopping. Up until that point, she'd been enjoying conversation with Dirk and using the opportunity to pick his brain about his career. When they got back into the car after doing the shopping, they realised they'd left a bottle of cooking oil in the shop, and Dirk asked her to run inside and get it. Anya, eager to please, did exactly that. When she jogged back to the car and handed Dirk the cooking oil, he told her that she looked sexy when she ran. Anya said that not only did she think this was creepy, because a man of this age was saying this to her, but she found it weird that someone would find running sexy. Little did she know that the man sitting next to her was capable of finding some very strange things arousing. He then asked Anya what her views on sex before marriage were. And she said that she'd like to remain a virgin until she was married. On arriving at Inner Circle Castle, of course Anya was blown away by the opulence and beauty of the house. But she very quickly came back down to earth when she saw a trophy standing on the kitchen counter. It read and I'm going to say this in a way that it doesn't set off any explicit content rules with Apple or YouTube, best ever, but it had the whole word on. It was apparently a gift from Cezanne to Dirk, accompanied with a note addressed to My God, and signed off as Your Slut. Anya was horrified but that would all be eclipsed when she walked into the couple's bedroom. 
Of course, they'd made no effort to hide their enormous porn collection, numerous sex toys or sexual bondage items, considering they were having a child over for the weekend. In contrast, Dirk seemed excited to see the reaction that Anya had. She was completely nauseated. Sadly, her weekend would get worse. Suzanne eventually returned home from the idol's audition, and the couple celebrated her success by forcing Anya to watch while Suzanne performed oral sex on Dirk. Suzanne instructed Anya to watch so that she could learn how to please a man. Anya started crying, and Dirk told her to go to her room if she didn't want to learn. She fled immediately. The couple allegedly apologised to her afterwards. The next day, Suzanne told Anya that they were going shopping. As soon as they were in the dressing room alone, Suzanne stripped naked and showed Anya her genital piercings. She allowed Anya to choose clothing, but ignored her statement that she wore a medium and instead purchased everything in extra small. Suzanne chastised Anya, saying that if she wanted men to look at her and lust after her, then she had to give them something to look at. The rest of the shopping trip involved Anya being forced to watch Suzanne have a Brazilian wax, and she declined her insistence that she should have one too, and then visiting a doctor where Anya watched fat being taken from Suzanne's buttocks and injected into her lips. Anya could not wait for the weekend with the couple to be over, and was bitterly disappointed and traumatised at what she'd been forced to witness. She was glad when the couple told her on Saturday night that they were going out and she'd be alone for the night. Dirk told her he'd left a movie in the video recorder for her. True to his nature, when Anya pressed play, she was met with the sight of her first porn movie. The next morning, they ate breakfast under the LARPA, and Anya noted that Dirk ate his breakfast while paging through a porn magazine. He looked up at her once, and asked her how she washed her genitals. She refused to answer. During this breakfast, Suzanne started asking Anya about another girl from the same children's home. The girl was called Charmaine, and was 11 years old. Anya had never spoken to Charmaine, so she had no information to offer. But Suzanne pressed on, specifically wanting to know if Charmaine had been molested by anyone before. This question is so creepy for so many reasons. Were they specifically trying to target girls who had experienced previous sexual abuse? The other option is that they were trying to avoid abusing girls who had already been abused. And that's just a sec. That inquiry puts this whole thing in a different light, in my opinion. Dirk and Suzanne weren't just taking advantage of having young girls in their house to get their perverted kicks. They were specifically targeting certain types of girls. Perhaps ones that they knew they could either defame at a later stage or control because of past traumas. The couple later performed sex acts in front of Anya again, 
and then Cezanne offered to colour Anya's hair for her. Taking advantage of the fact that Anya couldn't go anywhere, Cezanne used the opportunity to explain to the child in great detail how to perform oral sex on a man. Anya was overjoyed to be returned to the children's home that afternoon. She did not immediately tell anyone what had happened, as she was embarrassed and just wanted to move on. Her story would only come out after other complaints had been laid against the couple. Weirdly, when the woman in charge of the children's home was questioned during the trial, she said that because she was under the impression that Dirk and Suzanne were married, she hadn't thought it necessary to point out to them that they shouldn't openly perform sex acts in front of children. That's what she said. So it's normal in her mind for people who aren't married to show children pornography and have sex in front of them. That is one of the strangest things I have ever heard. And honestly, I don't really know that someone who thinks like that should be in charge of children. But that's just my opinion. Cezanne informed the home that the next girl they wanted to take home would be 11-year-old Charmaine, also likely not her real name. This choice was allegedly met with a bit of resistance from the home because Charmaine was deeply scarred from a difficult childhood and had not been at the home for very long. In their opinion, she was also too young to be fostered for the weekend. Charmaine herself had also stated that she didn't want to go with the couple. She was extremely shy and still adjusting to having been removed from her family, and she would later say that she got a bad feeling about Dirk. Cezanne easily and with premeditation circumvented this by finding out when the woman in charge was on leave and arriving on that day to collect Charmaine. The child's refusals were ignored, and she was marched to Suzanne's waiting vehicle and whisked off before anyone could think about whether it was the right thing to do or not. Such was the charm and manipulation of Suzanne Fisser. What made it even stranger that this child was allowed to go with these people is how they were dressed when they collected her. Suzanne was wearing ski pants, three sizes too small for her, and a bikini top that barely covered her enormous breasts. Dirk was wearing lycra cycling shorts and was naked from the waist up. They explained that they were going to gym. As soon as they drove away from the home, Suzanne handed a pair of ski pants to Charmaine, who was sitting in the back seat, and told her to put them on. She initially refused, but Suzanne said that she was going to embarrass them at the gym because no one wore normal clothes there, so she had better change. The or else to the already frightened child was implied. Charmaine did her best to change without exposing herself, as Suzanne refused to take her eyes off her, and she caught Dirk watching her in the rearview mirror while she changed. When they arrived at the gym, they went off to exercise and left Charmaine wandering around on her own. When the couple took Charmaine to their house after gym, 
she was almost immediately thrown into the lion's den. Suzanne told Charmaine to come to the bedroom while she changed out of her gym clothes, and the porn collection and sex toys were again in full view. Please keep in mind that Charmaine is only 11 years old. She would later testify that Suzanne had stripped naked and used a vibrator on herself in front of her. She had told Charmaine that it was her turn. The child refused and instead she had continued to masturbate while fondling the child who was frozen in fear and begging her to stop. When Suzanne was finished, she told Charmaine to choose a porn video from the collection. The child said that she couldn't even look at the movies and just reached out and grabbed one without looking and handed it to Suzanne. In the lounge, Charmaine was told to sit in one of the chairs while the couple played the porn movie and proceeded to reenact every scene in front of the child. They then put Charmaine to bed and Dirk later came into her room and tried to kiss and fondle her. The next day, Charmaine was forced to swim naked with Cezanne while Dirk watched, and then she was given clothing that she described as something a prostitute would wear and instructed to put it on. She refused. Later that afternoon, Cezanne called Charmaine into the bathroom where she found Dirk naked in the bathtub. She was instructed to perform oral sex on Dirk in the way that she had seen Cezanne do it. The child was paralyzed with fear, and when they realized that they weren't going to get her to do it, she instead had to watch as Cezanne did. When they were finished, Dirk left and instructed Cezanne to shave Charmaine's legs. Although the girl protested because she would get into trouble at the children's home, Suzanne held her down and shaved her legs. When Charmaine was returned to the children's home on Sunday, she was sobbing inconsolably, but the couple had threatened her with violence if she said anything, so for a while she kept quiet. Eventually, though, she couldn't take it any longer and she told one of the house mothers about the horrendous weekend she had endured. After Charmaine confessed about what she'd been through, Anya was called in and asked what her experience had been. She admitted that her experience with the couple had been equally disturbing. Management at the children's home initially decided not to lay charges against Suzanne and Dirk because they didn't believe that it would be in the interests of the children. Instead, they contacted other children's homes in the area and advised them not to allow the couple to take any children to their homes. The girls were given counselling to try and deal with their experiences. Eventually, after the home received many reports of the couple attempting to get children from other homes, they realised that they needed to do something, so they reported the incidents to the children's court. Sadly, we know how slowly the wheels of justice turn, and the couple would have more than enough opportunity to commit some of their worst crimes 
before anything actually came to light. The victim who would be most severely impacted by Cezanne Fusser and Dirk Prinsloo was a young girl called Janine Fonsale. This is Janine's real name, and the reason it was made public is because she is, sadly, no longer alive. We have quite a lot of information about Janine's life, and I think it's pertinent to tell her story in its entirety. Janine Fonsale was one of four children born to alcohol and drug-addicted parents. She and her older sister, Ruline, were extremely close, and when Janine was nine years old, the sisters started begging on the street for money for food. While Ruline decided that begging was as far as she would go, Janine soon realized that she could make far more money by prostituting herself. She no doubt learned this from her mother, who had also started prostituting herself to support her drug habit. Their parents were also stealing to make money, and while they were out doing this, the children had to stay with their grandmother, who'd recently remarried. It soon emerged that her step-grandfather had been molesting Janine. She reported this to her mother and father, who simply told her to essentially grin and bear it, and refused to report the sexual assault to police, because they were afraid that their own crimes would come to light. After this, Janine and Raleen started running away from home. They preferred to sleep on the street, rather than in the same house with the man who was molesting them, with their mother's consent, and I don't think anyone can blame them for that choice. They'd been on the streets for a little while, when their parents divorced, as both parties were cheating on the other. The girls were essentially abandoned, as neither parent's new partner wanted them around. The girls met a woman called Sue Fundamava, who would help them on and off, and be the only stability in their lives for many years to come. Sue was a soft-hearted local woman, who regularly helped local runaways, giving them food trying to help them get off drugs, and sometimes having them stay in her house with her own children. Understandably, the girls took some time to warm up to Sue, as they'd had very little reason to trust any adult in their lives. Sue looked out for them, though, and she would always locate them when they disappeared, convince them to come out of whichever hovel they were staying in at the time, and give them some normality for a few days until they ran off again. The sisters, as young as they were, had gotten used to freedom, and although they both would have preferred a good home, in their minds they were convinced that they were safer on the streets. The girl's mother, who was in a different relationship again, had heard that her daughters were staying with this woman, and decided she didn't like it. Any time she heard that they were with Sue, she would go and fetch them, and they would run away again, and the circle would perpetuate. Sue tried to get official help for the girls, too, through police and social services. She alleges that the SAPS told her that the girls, although minors, had been living on the outside of society for too long for them to be able to do anything about the situation. Social services took a harder stance, 
and told Sue to stop meddling and threatened her with a lawsuit if she continued to try and find help for the girls because she was not a registered social worker. Janine was 11 years old when she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. At the time, she was also drinking alcohol daily and smoking marijuana. She was occasionally placed in a children's home, but ran away as she said it was worse than living on the streets. She wanted to live with Sue, who was happy to take her in, but her mother would hear nothing of it and constantly complained to social workers or collected Janine from Sue's house. When she was 12 years old, Janine met a woman called Nesta, who was in her late teens to early 20s. In the book Shattered Lives, the authors describe Nesta as having fallen in love with Janine, and the two entered into a relationship. The book describes it in this manner, and states that Nesta did her best to care for and help Janine. And while that may be true, I personally can't agree with any relationship between a 20-odd-year-old person and a 12-year-old. Even if Nesta was 18, it wouldn't make a difference. I realise that Janine had probably seen and done more than most 12-year-olds, but that's not the point, in my opinion and with respect to the authors. I also think that it highlights the social judgment that is at the very core of this case. Why is it okay for a 20-year-old female to have a sexual relationship with a 12-year-old? We wouldn't agree with a 20-year-old man having a relationship with a 12-year-old, would we? So what's the difference? Only our perception. Because of our societal assumption that a woman would never hurt a child, we immediately assume that Nesta's intentions were pure, despite the fact that she was openly in a relationship with the child. Obviously, I don't know the extent of their sexual interactions, but there was certainly intent, and that would not have been condoned or described in glowing terms if Nesta was a man. That takes us straight back to Zazanne. Isn't that this exact presumption of innocence based on gender that allowed her to get access to these children in the first place? I'd love to hear your opinion on this strange phenomenon. Soon before her relationship with Nesta started, Janine started using heroin and their relationship would eventually end because Nesta allegedly could not watch her kill herself slowly with the drug anymore. Janine and Raleen had at this time started living with 17 other street children in an illegally occupied derelict building in Pretoria, and the SAPS was trying to have them removed. Sue was working to try and get the building declared a safe zone for these children, as she could no longer have them at her house, as she was evicted several times for having the downtrodden crowd living with her. This fight eventually made the news, and one Suzanne Fisser contacted Sue to offer her services as an advocate to help the fight. Sue had no idea who Suzanne was, and wasn't familiar with the advocate Barbie persona. 
so she eagerly accepted her help. It's unclear exactly how much help Cezanne and Dirk were in the matter, but it did get them access to the children that Sue helped care for. Sue would come to trust Cezanne, so when she arrived one day to say that she was having a lingerie party for ladies only, and she wanted some of the older girls to pose in sleepwear for the ladies, and they'd get to keep the items. Sue rounded up some of the girls, including Raleen and Janine, and asked them if they'd like to take part. In awe of the woman, as most young girls were, they agreed. The picture that Laurie had seen of the two red-headed girls giving Dirk and Cezanne foot massages while they were naked and masturbating came from the so-called lingerie party. The two girls in the photo had worked as prostitutes themselves in the past, so they were not averse to taking the photograph when asked, but they were both underage. Janine was trying her best to get her life back on track. She'd gone to rehab and managed to get off heroin, which is no easy feat. She was staying with Sue and had even gone back to school. Janine's mother was allegedly also trying to clean up her act and had started working at a children's home. She recalled how Janine had been so proud of her school uniform. Dirk and Cezanne had taken a liking to Janine and it wasn't long before Cezanne was attempting to convince Janine's mother to let the child visit them for the weekend. Janine was more than willing to go, as she greatly admired Cezanne, but her mother had heard stories about the busty blonde and was not as eager. In typical parental grooming behaviour, Cezanne started in on earning Janine's mother's trust. She would be allowed to take the girl to a mall for a few hours at a time, and the report back from the child was always glowing. Eventually, Janine's mother relented and allowed her daughter to visit with Cezanne at her home on the weekend of her 14th birthday. The one condition was that she had to be back home in time to celebrate with her family on the Sunday. Cezanne agreed and Janine was collected on the Friday. Janine was no stranger to sex at the time, having been involved in paid sex acts from the age of nine, and at the age of 14, she had a boyfriend that she was sexually active with, so the porn and the sex toys perhaps didn't have as much impact on her as it did the other girls. She'd still never seen such a huge collection of pornography in anyone's house before, and it likely gave her quite a different view of the couple. The Friday night was quite normal, but on the Saturday, Dirk instructed Cezanne to make Janine a cup of Milo. Janine doesn't remember very much after that. She does recall camera flashes going off and has vague memories of being raped by both Dirk and Cezanne. Cezanne, of course, would later deny any involvement, saying that she had gone to lock the doors and close the windows in the house and when she returned, she found that Dirk had raped Janine. When Janine awoke on Sunday morning, she was still extremely groggy, and Cezanne held her up 
while she administered a vaginal douche to the child, clearly attempting to remove any DNA evidence from her body. Although her mother had insisted that she be returned early on Sunday morning, she eventually found her child standing on the doorstep that afternoon. She still looked totally out of it and was sobbing uncontrollably. Eventually, she admitted to her mother that she believed that the couple had drugged and raped her the previous day. With her mother's history of refusing to report such things to the police, and Janine's own fear and mistrust of the police from when she lived on the street, it was a stroke of luck that a third party had overheard Janine's admission and insisted the matter be reported to the police. It would be Janine Fansale that eventually stopped Suzanne and Dirk from continuing with their crimes. The case was given to a Captain Carl Cornelius to investigate, and one of his first stops was to the children's court to see if any other complaints had been made about the couple. Due to their own strange processes, the child advocates refused to share any other cases with Cornelius, and therefore he didn't know at the time about Charmaine and Anya's experiences. Thankfully, the captain didn't give up there, and eventually, through talking to enough people, including Dirk's previous secretaries, he managed to round up enough evidence to get a search warrant. Janine, unfortunately, started to spiral out of control again after her rape at the hands of Dirk and Zazan. She started using heroin again soon after the incident and was diagnosed as HIV positive. Sue said that her heroin use became so bad that it was almost like she was trying to overdose. She would start coming down from one high and inject herself again. Captain Cornelius executed a search warrant on Inner Circle Castle in December 2002. The search took 10 hours, and the police eventually left with two computers, several bags of pornography, and a photo album that they had found in Dirk's safe. The album, covered in a red leather, would become a pivotal piece of evidence in the trial. It contained many photographs depicting child sexual abuse, as well as photographs of the girls that had been fostered by the pair. Sitting right next to the album in the safe were several tubs of prescription medications, which included rohypnol. Captain Cornelius later said that Dirk had been a loudmouth through the search, shouting that he was going to sue the state and that he was being framed. When Cornelius asked him for the key to the safe, though, he suddenly became very quiet. He knew very well that that photo album was going to be his undoing. Following the search, Suzanne and Dirk were arrested and taken to separate police stations for questioning. Within minutes of her interrogation starting, Suzanne, without even knowing what she was there for, told Cornelius that she had helped Dirk to commit other crimes and that she would give him all of the information she had. In that sentence, she admitted that she knew that what they'd been doing was both wrong and illegal. 
and that they had done more than one thing. In my opinion, that immediate turn on Dirk also says something else. Suzanne would later claim that she was under total and utter control of Dirk, and that it was like someone had replaced her brain with his brain. That extent of coercive control, or brainwashing to use a looser phrase, does not get undone in five minutes. People who are under this complete control often take years to be deprogrammed by professionals. You don't go from being under complete control of someone to the extent that you're committing sex crimes with him, to being willing to turn tail and tell all just because you're sitting in front of the police. If anything, in my opinion, that situation should have strengthened her resolve, but it didn't. I think that at the very least, that should give us some pause for thought. Suzanne tried to send a letter to Dirk, ending their relationship. But police intercepted, and he never received it. By the next time she saw him in court, she decided once again that they were in a relationship, and that she was going to support him instead of turning against him. She would continue with this flip-flopping for several months. Suzanne and Dirk were given bail on the condition that they have no contact with each other, or their victims, or other witnesses. Dirk tried to fight against the no-contact order, claiming that it was unconstitutional to not allow a married couple to have access to each other. This is the extent of this man's narcissism. Despite the fact that the prosecution could very easily prove that they were not married, he saw fit to present this lie in court, and his attorney went along with it. The order remained in force, and Suzanne had to go and live with her mother. Dirk did not comply with the order, and he constantly tried to get in contact with her, and arrived at Suzanne's house regularly. At this point, Suzanne had been convinced by her mother that she needed to end the relationship, which she did. Dirk didn't care, though. On Valentine's Day, he sent Suzanne a bunch of red roses in a crystal vase. Her mother wanted to throw the flowers in the dustbin, and when Suzanne refused, they got into a huge fight, which ended with Suzanne smashing the vase on the floor. Suzanne called Dirk to fetch her, and she moved back in with him, once again taking out a domestic violence protection order against her mother. Dirk had moved back into his love-bombing phase with Suzanne, presumably attempting to guarantee that she didn't testify against him. The couple presented to the courts that she could not be forced to live with a person against whom she had a protection order, and she had nowhere else to go, so they had to relax the order of no contact between the couple. In reality, Suzanne had many places to go at this time. Her father, Laurie, and several other people had invited her to stay with them to get her away from Dirk, but she didn't want that. Dirk put Inner Circle Castle up for sale, and he purchased a farm in Bella Bella. 
Captain Cornelius was struggling to get enough evidence together for his case, as Dirk was hiring people left, right and centre to threaten witnesses. Janine was constantly high on heroin and difficult to work with. He applied to the court for additional time to start the trial, but that was denied and the prosecution had to retract the charges against Dirk and Cezanne, with the saviet that they could be reinstated as soon as they had enough evidence to go to trial. In all, both Cezanne and Dirk had been facing 11 charges of sexual abuse each. Susanne, in the meantime, had come to a stark realisation. If she was going to be able to protect her daughter from Dirk, she would have to pretend to like him. It was the only way. She called the couple and asked to meet with them. She told them that she realised she had been wrong all along and that she wanted to support them through this difficult time. She sang Dirk's praises and eventually managed to convince them that she was on their side. I don't think she realised at the time how closely she was dancing with the devil and the consequences that it would have for her with the charges against him having been dropped for now, Dirk reverted back to his old self, turning Cezanne back into his sex slave, and now that Susan was in their lives, she witnessed it firsthand. Dirk allowed Cezanne and Susan to go on holiday together to Cape Town, and when he picked them up at the airport when they returned, he showed both mother and daughter how much respect he had for either of them. When the woman got into the car, Suzanne in the front and Susan in the back, both realised that Dirk had his penis outside of his pants. Without greeting Suzanne, he pushed her face into his crotch, and she performed oral sex on him while her mother covered her own face with a jacket in the back seat so that she didn't have to watch. She knew as well as Dirk did that if she protested, her daughter would be lost to her again. Dirk recognised the control he had over Susan very quickly and soon started to express a sexual interest in the woman, which he openly discussed with both Susan and Susan. For Susan, of course, that was just a bridge too far. But sadly, Dirk would not leave her any choice. On an overnight trip to the couple's house, Dirk drugged Susan and raped her. Susan said that she had walked in to find Dirk and her mother naked, and he had ejaculated on her mother. He instructed her to clean the woman and then dress her. Susan complied. When Susan woke the next morning, Although she was likely aware that something untoward had happened, she said nothing, and neither did Cezanne. When the sale of their house was going through, Cezanne and Dirk lived with Susan for a while. One night, Cezanne awoke to find Dirk, once again, raping her unconscious mother. This time, she allegedly fought with Dirk and tried to throw him out of the house. He apologised profusely and managed to convince her to let him stay. Once again, 
mother and daughter never spoke of the incident, and the couple moved to Bella Bella shortly afterwards. The case was officially reopened in 2003, and they were both charged again with the same 11 offences in 2005. They both pleaded not guilty, and were again given bail. Neither had been seen as a flight risk, so if they needed to leave the country, they just needed to advise the court of their intention to do so. Dirk travelled to Russia once during this time, and returned, and then in November 2005, he advised the court that he planned to spend Christmas in Russia. The court agreed and postponed the trial to April 2006. This time came and went, and there was no sign of Dirk Prinsloo. He had fled the country and not returned. He was not in contact with anyone in South Africa, and even his attorney had no idea where he was. An international arrest warrant was issued, and he was placed on Interpol's list of wanted fugitives. It is unclear when Cezanne and Dirk's relationship actually came to an end, but by the time he left her holding the proverbial bag, it was most certainly over in Cezanne's eyes. She started the process of returning her physical appearance to normal. She had her breast implants removed, and no longer peroxided her hair. She wore glasses and cut her hair into a bob. Without Dirk controlling her eating, she also gained a bit of weight, and by the time Dirk disappeared, Cezanne looked like any other normal woman on the street. Her advocate Barbie persona may have been gone, but she still had to face the music, and this time she had to do it alone. Several years would pass as authorities attempted to locate Dirk, to no avail, and Cezanne was informed that if Dirk did not surface soon, she would have to go on trial, on her own. In June 2009, Dirk Prinsloo was located. Well, technically, he was re-arrested, but not in Russia, and not in South Africa either. In fact, his arrest had nothing to do with the crimes he was accused of in South Africa. Dirk Prinsley was arrested in Belarus for bank robbery, and a charge they referred to as thuggery. Dirk would claim that he was only caught because his girlfriend at the time had been stupid enough to give the police his email address and password, and that's how they tracked him down. Actually, Dirk left his passport in the bank that he robbed, so police really didn't have to look very hard to figure out who their perpetrator was. Dirk, of course, will never admit to this, because it makes him look like the bumbling fool he is. In the three years that Dirk had been first in Russia and then Belarus, he'd racked up a string of girlfriends. He'd even had a child with one of them. Many of them described him as charming, but several women came forward with reports of domestic violence, and one even laid a charge of attempted murder against him. Dirk was seen as such a dangerous criminal that when he appeared in court in Belarus, he'd been locked in a cage. That's right, 
the Belarusians are so hard-ass that they lock people in cages to attend trial. I think that's pretty cool, to be honest. As soon as the news broke in South Africa that Dirk had been arrested, a South African journalist travelled over to Belarus to speak to him. She described him in her article as being overweight and unkempt, and he would later tell her that this really hurt his feelings. It emerged that Dirk had been travelling under a fake name, and all of his girlfriends, even the one he had a child with, knew him as Michael Grant. He had told everyone that he was an Australian businessman, and apparently no one was able to tell the difference between a South African accent and an Australian accent, which doesn't really surprise me, as many foreigners mistake the two. Of the charges against him in Belarus, he told the journalist that he just seemed to have the habit of falling in love with the wrong woman. I... Okay, Dirk. Dirk was found guilty of many of the charges against him in Belarus and sentenced to serve 10 years in a jail there. He made no bid to be returned to South Africa. Unfortunately for Suzanne, this meant that the bell had now tolled for her and her own trial would no longer be delayed. Suzanne attempted to claim that she was suffering from battered woman syndrome and while she denied many of the claims against her, the ones that she couldn't deny, she blamed on being controlled by Dirk. Now don't get me wrong, battered woman syndrome is a very real thing, and a fair enough defence in some cases. In this case, I don't know so much. If Suzanne had killed Dirk in order to escape him, I could have bought it. But can you really blame the type of consistent sexual abuse and assault that she was a part of on battered woman syndrome? I find it really hard to believe. He raped her own mother, for heaven's sake. Twice. I will admit that I thankfully never been in a situation where my mind was not my own to control. But even if I picture the depths of despair and control that that could bring, I would honestly rather take the beatings and the worst that that person can do to me rather than do what was done to those innocent children. I just couldn't live with it. While Suzanne was on trial for the charges against her, it was revealed that she had already received a different kind of sentence from her involvement with Dirk. Dirk had given her the human papillomavirus. In the book Shattered Lives, the author states that HPV has made Suzanne sterile and that due to her HPV status, she will likely develop cervical cancer later in life. I did a bit more research in, into HPV and discovered the following. HPV is a virus which can cause warts on the body in various places, depending on the strain. There are 100 different strains of HPV, and the type that Cezanne has does cause genital warts, and it is sexually transmitted. While the book states that the virus made her sterile, 
all of the articles I read said that there's no concrete link between HPV and fertility levels. As for HPV causing cervical cancer, this has more scientific basis, and it is the reason that girls are now immunized against the virus. Out of the 100 strains of HPV, 15 of them are known to significantly increase the risk of cervical cancer. This, as well as the fact that Janine was HIV positive and Dirk raped her without a condom, makes me wonder how many other lives have been impacted along the line by this couple's sexual behavior. Remember, it wasn't just their victims that they had sex with as a couple. They were swinging, they were having consensual threesomes, and procuring sex workers. Janine was still in the depths of her heroin addiction at the time of Cezanne's trial, but she managed to testify. She had another reason to do so at the time. Janine had become a mother, and she had a one-year-old little girl with her boyfriend. Sadly, in 2010, the same year that Cezanne was convicted of all of the charges against her and sentenced to seven years in prison, Janine took her own life. She was found hanging from a tree in a field in Botswana, where she'd been living with her boyfriend and daughter while he worked a six-week construction contract there. While we cannot lay the blame for Janine's suicide solely at the door of Cezanne and Dirk, they certainly contributed to her problems. She may still have gone back to heroin if it wasn't for them raping her, but we'll never know for sure, because that was the impetus for her next downward spiral. Janine's mother, however, seemed to completely forget how she had let her daughter down herself, and in speaking to the press after Janine's death, claimed that in her eyes, they had murdered her. I think, considering the circumstances, that's a little simplistic. But if I was Suzanne and Dirk, I would certainly feel a large amount of culpability in how things turned out for Janine. Suzanne attempted to appeal her sentence, but this was refused. She would eventually only serve three years before, in 2013, after two prior refused applications for parole, she was granted parole under certain conditions. Both Dirk and Cezanne's names were removed from the list of advocates, and Cezanne was registered as a sex offender. This means that she is never again allowed to work with or have unsupervised contact with children. She was also put under house arrest for the remainder of her sentence, with an allowance that she could go to work, but had to return by a stipulated time, and was not allowed to leave her house for any other reason. In 2018, Cezanne married a businessman from KwaZulu-Natal, and she is now Cezanne Smith. Dirk Prinsloo was allowed to apply for parole in Belarus in 2017, and when the South African government was advised of the possibility of this happening, they had to decide as to whether they would extradite him or deport him. 
The former meant that he would be accompanied by an Interpol official on a flight back to South Africa, and then handed over to police on his arrival. Deportation means that he would be sent back by his own volition, but he wouldn't be sent back to South Africa. He would be sent back to Russia, as that's how he got to Belarus in the first place, and there are no direct flights to South Africa from Belarus. The opportunities for him to disappear again on deportation were immense. Extradition is extremely expensive, though. Eventually, while South African authorities ummed and awed about what to do, the Belarusian authorities released Dirk and then rearrested him for deportation. As at the last article I could find in December 2018, Dirk Prinsloo was still being held in Belarus, awaiting deportation. Interpol has something called the Red List, which is a list accessible on their website of wanted international fugitives. This list helps to flag international travel by fugitives, and it's up to the authorities in the country of nationality to submit the fugitives' details on the system. Dirk Prinsloo does not appear to be on that list, although, to the best of my knowledge, there is still a warrant out for his arrest. Whether Dirk will ever face justice in South Africa for his crimes remains to be seen. Sadly, for at least one of his victims, it's too late. So I said in the beginning of this episode that I still had no idea whether I agreed with the side of the debates that says Cezanne was just another victim, or with the other side of the debate that says that she was a predator, just as Dirk is alleged to be. I think it may be a mixture of the two. There is no doubt that Cezanne experienced some level of control and abuse at Dirk's hands. There are external witnesses that confirm that. The question is, how much impact did that control and abuse really have on the crimes she committed? I can't help but compare this case to the likes of Rosemary and Fred West in the UK and our own infamous predator couple, Joey Hartoff and Gert van Royen. In both those cases, the woman was seen as pawns in the relationship, forced to take part in their husband's crimes because they were abused or otherwise controlled. Also in both of those cases, it was proven that the woman had equal if not more significant involvement in the more sadistic parts of the crimes. I don't know that we can compare Cezanne to either one of those women, but it's certainly an interesting contrast. To our knowledge, Cezanne has gone on to live a completely normal life without committing any other crimes. As we've seen with other criminal couples, though, and even in the group murder scenario of Krugersdorp killers, sometimes all it takes to wake up nefarious desires in someone is meeting the right, or rather wrong, person. There seems to be something about the pairing of two people that just brings out the worst in each, and unfortunately in this case, that had ongoing consequences for many, many people. I do hope that Dirk Prinsloo will answer to his charges at some stage. 
the victims in question deserve it. And I, for one, would sleep a lot easier knowing that he's not out there, manipulating and controlling someone else. Thank you for listening to episode 21, The Crimes of Advocate Barbie. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I want you to start getting excited for next Friday right now, because I will be back next week with a project that I've been working on for months. And I know that you're going to be as enthralled with the subject matter as I was. And no, I'm not giving you any clues. (laughs) Until then, I really appreciate all of your support. And I'll chat to you soon. Bye.